You know, one of the things I struggle with as a parent is having to make and enforce rules. Any parents out there think that's fun? Is it just me? Okay, good. You know, I, I just I hate being the bad cop with my princess. You know, I just I, I just when I have to get on to her for something or punish her for something, it just kills me. I never understood. My parents said this hurts me worse than it hurts you. I'd always be like, well, well, great. Well, then don't don't whip me then. That's, I would hate to hurt you, but I understand that now. But at the same time, even though I hate to do that and it kills me and I. It's just not my favorite part of parenting. At the same time, because I love my daughter, I will discipline her. Julie and I do set boundaries, and we make rules, and we enforce those rules, and if need be, we punish her so that we can teach her a better way, so that we can teach her what is the right thing to do. Now, does she understand all of that? No. <laughs> No, she just thinks dad's being the bad cop, right? She just thinks I'm just being mean when I, when I do some of those things because many of our rules, I'm sure, seem arbitrary to her. They seem unfair to her. But we make those rules because we love her, because we see and know things that she doesn't, and because we want what's best for her. We're all a little like children when it comes to rules and boundaries, aren't we? We want our way, and we want it now. That doesn't change as you get older. We just find more sophisticated ways of sort of expressing that. And when God, our Heavenly Father, sets boundaries and makes rules, we may be tempted to think He's just being the bad cop, a cosmic killjoy. We fail to understand that our Father sees and knows things that we don't. He designed us. He created us, and He knows how we work best. And our Father wants nothing but the absolute best for each of us because we are made in His image and infinitely loved by Him. The world has always struggled with God's boundaries regarding sex and sexuality. Because the world has a very different way of thinking about sex and sexuality than the Bible does. And so the question is, whose understanding of those things is right? Who are we going to trust when it comes to sexual ethics? Obviously, I believe we should trust God and what He says in the Bible. After all, in 2,000 years of church history, there's been virtually no disagreement on the definition of marriage nor the sinfulness of extramarital sexual activity, including homosexual activity. Only in recent decades has there been any sort of attempt to argue that the Bible does not expressly condemn sexual relationships of every kind outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman. I would argue that if anything should be considered culturally dependent, it's not the biblical teaching on sexuality but the current questioning of it. That's what's culturally dependent. Timothy Keller writes, if we believe in the Bible's authority, then shifts in public opinion should not matter. The Christian faith will always be offensive to every culture at some points. It's always been true, and it always will be. 
Well, there's so much we could talk about this morning. The authority of Scripture factors into this, God's overall design for sex, a a biblical sexual ethic, the difference between sin and temptation, uh, and and the source and nature of our identity. And and we're going to touch on some of those briefly as we go. But this morning we need to understand the sinful, fallen world we live in and how homosexuality is both a result of and a reflection of the corruption of sin around us and within us. We will then examine the biblical texts that mention homosexuality to see if they really condemn homosexual practices. And my prayer is that we will also discover that there is hope for those who struggle with same-sex attraction and that we will see how God calls His church to reach out to them in love and truth with conviction and compassion. See, some people argue that the Bible doesn't say much about homosexuality, so it can't really be that big of a deal. But in Scripture, the number of mentions is not an indication of something's importance. Let's say that again. In Scripture, the number of mentions is not an indication of its biblical importance. If that were the case, then the idea of mankind being created in God's image or our charge to take care of the environment and creation wouldn't be very important because they're not mentioned but just a handful of times in the Bible. But we can't also just look at isolated passages of Scripture either when it comes to this or or any issue. Rather, we must consider the comprehensive story of the Bible. So let's start at a very good place to start in the beginning. Genesis 1 through 4, in this account of the creation story, we see that God makes pairs of different but complementary things that are designed to work together, sort of like matched shoes. They're different but complementary. They go together, but they don't match, right? So, for example, in creation, God creates heaven and earth, light and darkness. He calls those day and night. There's evening and morning. There's the waters above the heavens and the waters below the heavens. There's the dry land and the seas. There's the greater light that rules the day, the lesser lights that rule the night. And then at the end of the account, God creates humanity as male and female. Different, but complementary things that are to work together. Unity in diversity. Variety with equality are divine values that are interwoven into creation. God designed a world where unlike things unite and create dynamic wholes which generate more and more life and beauty. And the climax of all of this is the creation of man and woman as bearers of God's image, uniting as one flesh in order to fill and form the earth. Men and women have unique non-interchangeable qualities and can each see and do things that the other cannot. And sex was created by God as a way to mingle these strengths and qualities within a lifelong covenant of marriage. If any sexual prohibition in the Bible is to make any sense, we have to understand this vision of sex and sexuality as created by God. Of course, as we know, God's beautiful, brilliant, original design was marred by mankind's rebellious rejection of God and His intentions for us. Remember, Satan plants the seeds of doubt and distrust in Adam and Eve's hearts with a simple question. Did God really say? 
Did God really say you're not to eat of any tree in the garden? Did He really say that? And from the seeds of doubt and distrust, disobedience sprouted. With their rejection of God and His righteousness, sin and its consequences entered the world. And those effects are described in Genesis 3 and 4, and they're illustrated throughout the rest of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, and, well, just watch the evening news, right? We see it to this day. The sexual mores of our culture are simply the continuing results of that original sin. And our ongoing doubt and distrust of our Creator is played out every day. We have rejected God's commands about sex based on a false understanding of His character. It's based on a false understanding of the overarching story that God is trying to tell in the world. And Satan to this day continually puts the question in our mind, did God really say? Does God really know what's best? Can God really be trusted? And we turn from Him... In, in obedience to a different command. Not His command. We adopt a different overarching story. One that is about me. That's what we do. We, we adopt a story where it's about me. That presses me to be myself. To do what feels good to me. To do what I think is right. After all, we have to be true to ourselves. Right? And some bind to the lie that their sexual desires determine their personal identities. And the lie that any curbing of strong sexual desires, well, that's just cruel and unjust and can't be healthy. If you've got that desire, whatever it is, you, you must give in to it. You've got to follow through with those, those urges and desires, right? You sh- I mean, after all, I should be free to be me. That's the message of the world. In Romans 8, 20-23, Paul describes how creation was subject to frustration because of sin. But not for its destruction, rather for its salvation. You see, God doesn't curse creation to destroy it, but to set it up for its eventual renewal and redemption. And in verse 23, Paul includes our own bodies in that process. When he writes, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. John Piper makes a good observation based on this passage. He says, Same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are in that category of groaning. Waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Which means that they are in the same broad category with all kinds of disordered bodies, minds, and emotions. I mean, all of our wants, desires, motivations, emotions, thoughts, they're all broken and disordered. We are all bent towards sinful desires. Wanting things we should not want. Searching for meaning and fulfillment in things that are empty and fading. All of us are. See, when God-given desires are disordered by sin, we call that temptation. And sinning is what happens when we give expression to those disordered desires and rebel against God. So if someone asks the question, well, aren't homosexuals born that way? 
The answer is yes. Yes, they're born that way. They are born just as broken and sinful and disordered in their thoughts and desires as you and I are. You understand what I'm saying? We're all born with different proclivities, with different sinful desires that we tend toward. It's just that they are disordered and broken sexually in a way that draws them to the same sex rather than the opposite sex. Now, I understand what people mean when they ask that question. Though. What they're asking is, isn't homosexuality genetic? And the answer is, nobody knows. See, our culture believes, and you will hear this preached time and again, that genes determine everything. That everything about you is genetically predetermined. It's, it's really sort of the revival of the old-fashioned idea of fate, of destiny. That, that whatever your genetic makeup is, well, that's just what you're destined to do and be. And they view sexual orientation and desire just as genetically determined as one's race. That is a dangerous and false line of thinking because unlike race, sexual orientation is known through a person's conduct. And behaviors and conduct should always be open to ethical evaluation. A person's skin color has nothing to do with his or her moral actions or behavior, but sexual orientation does. See, the assumption in this line of reasoning is that homosexual desires are innate, genetic predispositions that cannot nor should they be resisted. In fact, legislation is happening around this country to make it illegal to ever try to counsel someone who has same-sex desires to try to help them change those desires. That's becoming illegal. So now it's criminal to even talk about someone fighting those desires. But this is inconsistent with how we think about and treat those who are born with other genetic predispositions, like people are born genetically predisposed to addictive behaviors, like alcoholism or gambling or drugs or nicotine. People are genetically predisposed to obesity, kleptomania, paranoia, even compulsive lying. I mean, we are sinful and broken people living in a sinful and broken world. Is it any surprise that our bodies are groaning inwardly as a result of creations being subject to the frustration of sin? The curse bears forth even in our genes. We are affected by sin. You can do your own research on the genetic links of homosexuality. It won't take you that long because they've not found any definitive genetic link to homosexuality. They've discovered some genetic markers that that gay men and women seem to share, but those aren't necessarily causal. In fact, the American Psychiatric Association admits that the causes of homosexuality are a mystery. And they say that they are likely a combination of genetic predispositions and environmental factors. In other words, it's nature and nurture. Both of those play a part. Now, as I've said, we all have predispositions in many areas of our lives toward one direction or another. But that doesn't mean that we should give in to them. Just because you're predisposed to addictive behaviors doesn't mean that alcohol, drugs, or gambling are the best things for you, does it? And that you probably should avoid those things, shouldn't you? While research has barely found a genetic link to homosexuality, we do know that 70% of alcoholics are genetically predisposed. That's why we treat alcoholism as a disease. Would you ever tell an alcoholic you were born that way? It's genetic. 
go ahead and spend your life drunk. Would you ever say that to someone who's trying to overcome alcoholism? No. Why do we seem to think that's okay to say when it comes to sexual behavior? Let me say that while homosexuality may not be genetic, it is just as wrong to simply call being gay a choice as it would be to just accept and affirm the lifestyle. Much damage has been done to individuals and to the homosexual community as a whole by people in churches who have disregarded the very real struggles and underlying issues that homosexuals deal with every day. Were they born that way? Not necessarily. Is it a choice? Not necessarily. It's a little more complicated than that. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the sins that you struggle with. Whatever they may be. The things that you're ashamed of thinking, feeling, or doing. Are those just a choice for you? Or is there something more to it? Whatever the sin, if it was just a choice, it'd be really easy for us to be perfect, wouldn't it? But it's not just a choice. We're all bent. We're all disordered. We're all compelled in some ways to sinfulness. None of us choose what Hebrews calls the sin which so easily entangles us, but we can choose how we deal with it. Do we simply give in to it and proudly live in that sin? Or not? You see, the call to Christ is the call to come and die to ourselves and our sinful, disordered desires, whatever those might be. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. In his book, Homosexuality and the Christian, Mark Yarhouse notes, although homosexual behavior has been practiced in other cultures throughout history, we are the first culture in which people refer to themselves in that way. See, it's assumed in our society that a person with homosexual orientation must embrace a gay identity and lifestyle in order to be true to him or herself. The reasoning goes, if you feel it, it must be real and exalted as the primary source of your identity. But when Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell all he has, give it to the poor, and follow him, what Jesus is asking this man to do, this man whose identity was wrapped up in his wealth, Jesus is asking him to surrender that identity in favor of a new identity, one that is a disciple of Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus means that our identity is crucified. We die and we are made to live anew and our identity is found in Christ alone. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We die to those sinful desires so that we can live unto Christ. Colossians 3, 3-4 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. If you're a Christian, your identity can be found in nothing or no one else but Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
if you're interested further in this, especially if you're a Christian who is struggling with same-sex desires. Or maybe you know someone, a friend or a family member, who is struggling with these things. Let me refer you to a wonderful website. It's in your notes. It's livingout.org. And this is a website of an organization whose job is to resource Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Uh, They're based out of England, so everybody on there, if you watch the videos, they'll have this really cool British accent. But their stories are amazing. They have so much to say about finding one's identity as a new creation in Christ rather than your sexual desires. Let me just share a few thoughts from their website. They say, the Bible knows nothing of the concept of sexual orientation. So no one is ever referred to in the Bible as being gay, lesbian, straight, or bisexual. God's Word speaks only of sexual practices. That is, those which are pleasing to God and those which are not. I now have a new identity, one which is based not on who I'm sexually attracted to, but rooted in my most important relationship of all, that is, my relationship with Jesus Christ. And the author then refers back to 2 Corinthians 5.17 and says, For me, part of the old that has gone is this idea of identifying myself and describing myself according to my sexual attractions. If I were to hold on to that label gay as if it's somehow intrinsic to who I am now, then by denying myself a same-sex relationship, it would feel as if I'd be denying who I really am. If my true identity is in Christ, however, then denying myself a same-sex relationship seems like a much more positive outworking of my commitment to follow Jesus Christ and to put Him first in my life. There's no way I could put that as well as they did. But you know, all of this is moot, though, if homosexuality really is not a sin. If homosexuality is not a sin, then everything I've just said doesn't matter. It would apply to, to any other sin. But does the Bible actually condemn homosexual practices as sinful? Now, there are certainly those who would argue that the Bible doesn't. They say that since Jesus was silent on homosexuality, it must not be that big of a deal to God. They say that the Old Testament laws about homosexuality are outdated and they just don't count. They say that what Paul was condemning wasn't what people today consider loving, committed homosexual relationships. So this morning as we finish, I want us to briefly examine these key passages. The first is Genesis 18 through 19. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the first recorded practice of homosexuality in the Bible. But is sodomy really what Sodom is about? See, in the story, the men of Sodom try to forcibly have sex with these two men who have come to visit the town and they're staying the night in Lot's house. Now, what these men of Sodom don't know is that these two men are angels of God come to bring God's judgment on the city. They picked the wrong two guys. So they all crowd around Lot's house and they are trying to implore and plead and ask Lot to send them out. Now, though Sodom is accused of a range of sins in several Old Testament passages... You read about it in in Ezekiel, you read about it in several other prophets. Beyond this story, the homosexual conduct is never mentioned. It's never listed in the Old Testament as one of Sodom's grievous sins. So because of that, some conclude that the real sin of Sodom was social oppression, injustice, not being hospitable. But a close look at the text makes it clear that homosexuality was an issue. Look at Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Pretty cut and dry. And Lot's dreadful offer of his daughters as an alternative to their homosexual desires points to their twisted desires and it points to the cultural depravity of this town. Now, in the New Testament, Jude adds an important insight. He says this, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And that that word is two Greek words that means unnatural desires. So most commentators and scholars believe that that's referring to the unnatural desire, as Paul calls it, of, of these men desiring to have sex with other men. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude makes it clear that Sodom's ungodliness did involve sexual immorality. And Sodom was indeed punished for sexual sins as well as other sins that are mentioned. The next passage of Scripture is two verses in Leviticus. Leviticus 18 and 20. There are two prohibitions against homosexual activity. Leviticus 18.22 says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. And of course, lie with is a euphemism for having sex. Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, some suggest that Leviticus is not condemning homosexual behavior in general, but just the cultic prostitution that was engaged in in the pagan temples among the Canaanites. Others argue that what Leviticus says about homosexuals doesn't have any moral relevance because Leviticus is full of other laws which no Christian is expected to follow today, like the command not to plant two kinds of seed in your field. How many of you ever plant more than two, two kinds of seed in your field? Right? You know, if you have a garden, you've got lots of different plants you plant there, right? Or the command not to wear a cloth made of two kinds of fabric. Anybody wearing any cotton polyester blends this morning? Right? Or the command not to eat shellfish. Any of you guys ever eat any shellfish? I know a lot of you do. So if, if we don't adhere to those, why adhere to what it says about homosexuality? Well, let me take the first objection. If you look at Leviticus 18, almost the entire chapter is about unnatural and unlawful sexual relations. And there is nothing in verse 22 to allude to any kind of connection to religious pagan activity. That is just reading something into the text that isn't there. And in both of these verses, homosexual practices are listed, along with adultery, incest, and bestiality, as equally detestable to the Lord. That means all sexual activity outside of that between a husband and a wife are equally wrong. Homosexual sin is not unique. It is not in some special class of sin. Anyone in Israel's midst who engage in these kinds of sexual sins are to be dealt with severely, reflecting just how seriously God takes sexual purity. Now, the second objection basically says, if Christians no longer regard eating shellfish as wrong, why can't we change our minds on homosexuality? That's a good question but it reveals a gross misunderstanding of the nature of Scripture. We have to understand the difference between ceremonial ritual purity laws and the moral laws. Not all the laws in Leviticus are the same. They're not of the same kind or the same class. Just like we have different classes of laws in our country today. The New Testament explains how the ceremonial laws, based on the sacrificial system, and the purity laws meant to keep Israel separate from surrounding pagan cultures, 
were all fulfilled in Christ and are no longer binding. Hebrews talks about this. Jesus talks about this. That those laws were fulfilled. They no longer apply to us. However, Jesus and the New Testament writers all affirm that the moral laws of the Old Testament are still in force. All branches of Christianity have accepted this view since the New Testament times. To reject the distinction between the ceremonial and moral laws is to reject biblical authority. Because if you dismiss what Leviticus says about homosexuality because we're wearing you know, cotton polyester blends, then why not also dismiss the commands against incest and, and adultery? Why adhere to the golden rule? That's in Leviticus. We don't treat all the laws in Leviticus the same. Does that make sense? Are there laws and rituals in the Bible that Christians no longer have to follow? Yes. But if the Scripture is our final authority, it's only the Bible itself that can tell us what those laws are. We don't have the authority to just decide that for ourselves. We have to also remember that the prohibitions against homosexuality are restated in the New Testament. In Mark 7, Jesus himself agrees with the rest of the New Testament writers that while the clean laws and the ceremonial code are no longer in force, the moral laws of the Old Testament, and Jesus may not refer to homosexuality, but he does refer to those class of laws in Leviticus 18 and 20 in an all-inclusive way, that those are still in effect for all people. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. In this passage, Paul describes how people have turned away from God to embrace idolatry and wickedness. And and the New Testament's Greco-Roman culture is case in point to all of this. When society suppresses God's truth about himself as revealed in creation, they will face God's wrath. And Paul illustrates how this has happened with three examples of how people exchange what has been known about God for something else. He says they have exchanged the glory of God for idols... They've exchanged the truth of God for lies. And they've rejected the knowledge of God by exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. Look at verses 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Here Paul describes homosexual behavior as unnatural because it contradicts God's purpose for us as revealed in creation and reiterated throughout Scripture. And notice that Paul refers to lesbianism as well as male homosexual conduct. Also notice that Paul says these men were inflamed in lust for one another, referring to mutual desires for each other. There are people who want to say that Paul was talking about the the man-boy relationships that were prevalent in Roman culture. That's what he's condemning. Or master and slave, where one one person is sort of being compelled. But these are words of mutuality. They're, They're lusting for one another. Paul was obviously condemning all homosexual activity including mutual same-sex activity between consenting adults. It's also important to recognize that Paul is talking here in social rather than individual terms. When he says God gave them over, he's describing what happens to culture as a whole rather than a particular person. So the presence of same-sex desire in someone is not an indication that that person has somehow turned from God more than anyone else. 
It's just a sign that society as a whole has turned from God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, I'm not going to read this passage, it's up on the screen, but here Paul lists homosexual practices with other forms of sin. And he says that all these practices contradict sound teaching and the gospel. He says they do not conform to the life Christians are now to lead. They go against the grain of the new identity that we're to have in Christ. And the last occurrence is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10. through 10, And I'll read those to us. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In these verses, Paul again is listing different kinds of people who will be excluded from the kingdom of God unless they repent. Four of these relate to sexual sin and two to homosexual sin. Paul uses two different Greek words to refer to those who engage in homosexual practices. The first, malakoi, uh, NIV translates it male prostitute. It could also refer to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. And the second term Paul uses is arsenokoitai. Say that 12 times real fast, right? That's the general Greek term for homosexual activity. So by pairing these two words, Paul is addressing homosexual partners, which again means that the kinds of homosexuality that Paul is thinking of would include mutual consenting adults. Now, what does all of this mean for our understanding of homosexuality? Three things real quick. One, homosexual sin is serious. Paul says the active and unrepentant homosexual, as with all unrepentant sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul urges his readers, he says, do not be deceived. He's urging them, don't be deceived on this point. He assumes that there will be those who will deny this teaching and argue that some forms of these sins, including homosexual conduct, are somehow acceptable to God. Paul is warning us from 2,000 years ago, don't be deceived on this. Paul is being clear that homosexual conduct leads people to destruction. Second, homosexual sin is not unique. Paul's list includes other forms of sexual sin and non-sexual forms of sin. Homosexual sin is incredibly serious, but it is not alone. It is wicked, but so is greed. Paul mentions greed in there too. We must never imply that homosexual activity is some special class of sin. It is not. Three, homosexual sin is inescapable is not inescapable. Excuse me. Homosexual sin is not inescapable. The world wants to tell us that it is inescapable. That once homosexual, you're always a homosexual. That a person's sexual orientation is the essence of their identity. But Paul continues on in verse 11 and says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul dismissed their pasts completely. The moment they put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, they were made righteous with God and were changed. Some of the Corinthian Christians clearly had been active homosexuals. 
They once lived in these ways, but no more. They have been forgiven and cleansed from their sins and set apart for God. They have a new standing and a new identity in Christ. Guys, homosexuality is not a new sin. It's not a unique sin, nor it is an unforgivable sin. It can be forgiven. And people can be delivered from that lifestyle. However, ingrained it may be in some individuals, homosexual conduct is not inescapable. It is possible for someone living a gay lifestyle to be made new by God. And there are many who can testify to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that, that those temptations and those feelings are gone? No. Temptations and feelings may linger. Since Paul warns his readers not to revert to their former way of life, it suggests that there is still some desire for those sins. But in Christ, we are no longer who we were. Those who have come out of an active gay lifestyle need to understand how to see themselves as Christians who are no longer defined by their sins or by their desires. We have a new identity found in Christ and what He has done for us. We cannot ignore the sexual boundaries found in the Bible as some want to do in the name of love and tolerance. As a church, we certainly must love and welcome everyone. There's not a person in this county, there's not a person in this world who we would not welcome into this place to worship with us. But to ignore the truth about what a lifestyle does to someone is not love. To withhold God's stern warnings about a lifestyle and a sin is not love. If my daughter wanted to touch a hot stove, the loving thing is not to sit back and let her fulfill her desires, is it? It's to tell her, stop! Don't touch that! It'll burn you. But on the other hand, we cannot treat one kind of sin differently than another nor can we treat one kind of sinner differently than another. So we have two extremes. You can champion love without offering truth, which some churches want to do. And you can champion truth without doing it in love, which some people do as well. But Jesus calls us to a different way. He calls us to always speak the truth in love. John 1 tells us that Jesus came in grace and truth. Whenever we address homosexuality, as with any sin that people struggle to overcome, we must always do it with humility and compassion. Remember that such were some of you. Even the man or woman, proudly and opening living a homosexual lifestyle, can find the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We need to lovingly and compassionately share with them the truth about their lifestyle, but also share with them the message of hope, deliverance, and the real love that wins. And we must pray for those believers who struggle with same-sex attraction and homosexual orientation and walk with them in patience, grace, and compassion as they strive to follow Jesus with all of their being. There's so much more that we could say this morning about how we are to respond to this issue in grace and truth. That would be a whole other sermon. But you know what? This issue is not going anywhere anytime soon, is it? In fact, it, it's becoming more and more prevalent. We're facing more and more pressure to change our beliefs, and that, that will likely increase 
We will, we will face increasing efforts to marginalize and silence anyone who believes differently than the culture at large about sexuality. So there will be occasions for us to talk about this again, I'm sure. And as we pick back up next week and continue through Acts, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about how we are to go and tell the lost who are lost in their sin about the radical, life-transforming love of Jesus Christ. Do you know that love this morning? Have you come to Jesus? Have you seen His great love for you? Because you know what? No matter what your sin no matter what your background, no matter what you struggle with, Jesus is here for you. He wants to be the bedrock of your identity. He wants to forgive your past and chart your future into His eternal kingdom. If you would come and let go of whatever it is that takes the place of God in your heart, whatever it is beyond God that is the source of your identity, if you would crucify that, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then He will make you a new creation. Maybe this morning God is calling you to unite with this church or to rededicate your life in some way. Maybe God has placed someone on your heart that you know struggles in this way that you want to come and pray about. This altar is open for prayer. I'm standing down front to receive you as you follow God's leading. Would we stand and sing? Let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of His grace.